please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 6, that's verses 1 through 4. And if you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the pews, that's page uh, 811. Jesus is continuing to preach of the way of the kingdom to the disciples that he's gathered with others listening in. Let's listen as he speaks to us as well. Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. Let's attend to God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We come to a new chapter in the text as the Bible is divided up for us as it's printed these days. But really, Jesus is not doing something new here. Jesus is just making a shift in perspective. For the last few weeks, Jesus has been unpacking what righteousness in the kingdom looks like. He's talking to the followers, explaining, as you follow me, seeking to follow God, this is what life looks like for us. This is what wise living in the kingdom looks like. And for the past, past few weeks, Jesus has been talking about righteousness through the lens of what God's people are called not to do. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And then he goes on. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. And then he goes on. Jesus has been talking about limits that God's people are called, things that restrain evil. And yet as he's done so, he's pointed God's people to a deeper sense of what they're responsible to before God, helping show them what God's desire for righteousness has always looked like. So it's not just a matter of restraining from outward evil. But examining our hearts to see the seeds of sin and attack and lust and murder that exist within. Jesus is continuing to unpack righteousness, but he's now turning to the positive sense. When we talk about the idea of sin, the language in scripture, the word that we use, uh, that, that we translate sin, has the idea of missing the mark. And we miss the mark in one sense when we do what God tells us not to do what we call transgression. Sin is any transgression of the law of God. And Jesus has really explained what God's law says about the things that we're not supposed to do. But the other way that we can miss the mark is a lack of conformity to God's word and his instructions, to not do what he's called us to. So as Jesus has been explaining what righteousness, righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees looks like in the kingdom, it's not just refraining from evil externally and internally, but now he turns to explain what doing the good that God has called us to looks like externally and internally. Let's pray that we would hear what Jesus says. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you 
preached to your disciples, that you preached to the crowds, and your words by your spirit and your will are kept for us, that you might speak now to us. Would your spirit work within us to receive your word? Would your spirit be with me that I would proclaim only that which you have for your people this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. This week I started coaching soccer for Gideon, his little under eight league, and blessed to have an assistant coach. And after our first practice this week, he asked me, so did you play a lot of soccer growing up? Because he didn't. And, and here's, here's the, the ugly heart of me. He just wanted to know if I had experience with soccer. But I automatically intuited that to mean, were you any good at soccer? And, and so I said, well, I, I did play through high school. And yet, as I said that, I was wrestling with the fact that I played recreational soccer from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. But I wasn't good enough to play on the high school team. I was a good rec player, but not good enough to play for my high school. Not good enough to play in college. And as I was thinking about that this week and my desire to measure up, I was, I was just thinking about soccer in general. We, we think of these different levels, whether it's soccer or other athletics, and we think about, okay, there's rec league or there's peewee leagues, and then they go up. And in America, you can be a really good soccer player, and then you go to Europe. You go to where soccer truly started, where football started in, in Britain and spread throughout Europe, and it doesn't matter how good you are in the U.S., it matters whether you are good in the eyes of those who developed and started the sport and are the most elite. Things that can appear good according to one perspective or one lens may be found to be insufficient in the lens of those who designed or are the best at something. This morning as we move into this next section, we are wrestling with the fact that God defines righteousness. That life in the kingdom is determined by the king. And so while others may say, that's righteous, that's good, that's moral, good on you. The question is, is their appraisal of righteousness what defines righteousness, or is it the one who created righteousness and defines righteousness? And this morning, what we're going to see, and it's going to be unpacked further in the coming weeks, is since God is the one that defines righteousness, then our righteousness needs to be practiced for God and not for others. We don't need to examine first and foremost our hearts or our actions before the eyes of others, but our hearts and actions before the eyes of God. Jesus calls us to this as he deals with giving to the poor, as we'll look at prayer, as we'll look at fasting as well. But this morning, we're going to look at what it means to define righteousness according to the gaze of God. This morning, we're going to ask, what does righteous action look like? What is Jesus calling us to? How are we supposed to do what Jesus is saying? What do righteous methods look like according to the king? And then lastly, we're going to look at righteous motives. The why that spurs on the deeds that we are seeking to do to fulfill righteousness in the kingdom. So first, we're going to deal with the fact that Jesus assumes, Jesus commends righteous action in the kingdom. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, 
twice. He says it first in verse 2, and then he says it again in verse 3. When you give to the needy. In Jewish practice, in Jewish religion, it was assumed that a good Jewish person did three things beyond their regular worship and sacrificial participation. They gave to the poor, they prayed, and they fasted. Those were the three pillars of a pious Jewish person. And so Jesus says, when you do this, Jesus assumes that our righteousness will be expressed in religious duty. Now, some of us, we hear that word religion, and we might balk a little bit. Because oftentimes we hear comparisons between religion and the gospel, right? The gospel says this, while religion says this. And this can be helpful when we mean religion to be purely legalistic or formalistic or purely outward. But really, religion is the service and worship of God. It's the system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. Jesus assumes that if you are part of the kingdom of God, if you are following him into the expression of the kingdom that God has promised, that there will be evidence of that through righteous action here, giving to the poor. Jesus expects us to fulfill what the Jews in the Old Testament had been doing. God had established it as practice and law that God's people should care for the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8, it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. In Leviticus 19, we read that when people were to go out into their fields and harvest, they were to leave things to intentionally provide for the poor. Jesus, again, is not breaking with the Old Testament. Jesus is continuing the righteousness that God has declared to his people, but drawing attention to the things that God's people tend to ignore. See, Jesus is not interested in getting rid of good works, but in making our good works truly good. He is interested in removing hypocrisy. Jesus opens this section, and really verse 1 not only establishes what we're reading now, but the next few uh, sections that we'll be reading. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 2 he says, Do not do these things as the hypocrites do. And this language of hypocrisy is going to show up again in this section of his sermon. Now, when we think of hypocrisy, we tend to think of someone who says one thing and does another. Someone who says, I don't drink alcohol, alcohol is bad, and then secretly drinks alcohol on their own. Or who says, I never watch bad movies, I never use curse words, and then secretly, when no one is around, does things like that. And that is a form of hypocrisy. But hypocrisy comes from the idea of wearing a mask, from actors that would wear masks on the stage. And really what hypocrisy really is about is not saying one thing and doing another, but is doing one thing while being another. 
See, it's the inconsistency between what's happening on the outside and what's going on on the inside. The problem is not that giving to the poor is not good, but it's not sufficiently good. It's to be matched with an internal heart and motivation. This reminds us of why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We read from Ephesians 2. We said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. The good news of the gospel is not only that we are saved from our sins, but that we are saved to the purpose for which God has made us, glorifying him doing what he made us for, to be his image bearers, to have dominion in the world in such a way that people see what we do and give God glory. Jesus is not saying, come follow me and reject the old way of having good deeds and giving to the poor and sacrifices and fasting and prayers. He's saying these good things can be better. And that's why I've come. Jesus wants full righteousness, care for the poor that is truly righteous. This is what he comes to save us to. What does such an inwardly matching form of righteousness look like when it comes to taking care of the poor? What is the righteous methodology? Jesus says thus, If we want to make sure our righteousness is not just external, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by you. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus speaks here of doing our righteousness in secret. Doing it in a way that is not advertising what we're doing to others. And there's two ways in which this is expressed. It's to be, in one hand, secret with regard to others, and on the other hand, secret with regard to ourselves. First he says, don't go around like the hypocrites, for they are sounding no trumpet in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. First of all, there is no record that this was a practice of the day. We have no one described going to synagogue worship with a trumpet sounding what they were doing. Jesus is using the idea of the advertising of that a trumpet would signal to show the preposterousness of how some people are giving. You know, a trumpet would say, hey, pay attention to me. A trumpet or a horn would be blown before there was a big announcement, before the king or the emperor or the local governor said, hey, pay attention to this. And what he's saying is, there are those among you who go about giving to the poor and to the needy in such a way that you are seeking to advertise it to others. He mentions the synagogues and the streets. Those who were poor whether it was because of illness or catastrophe or for other reasons, would gather in places to seek alms, to seek gifts from others where there were going to be people. So they tended to gather outside the synagogue, outside the temple, 
alongside the road. One of the more profound miracles in Jesus' ministry is the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is on the side of the road calling out for Jesus, the son of David. Why is he on the side of the road? Because he's there begging in his blindness so that others would give to him. And so where there are lots of people, there is lots of opportunity for your giving to be seen, to be noticed. Jesus warns against this. Jesus says, you are doing this and you will have a reward, but is that the reward that you want? Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Do not do this righteousness. Do not give to the needy. Do not care for the hurting. Do not have your compassion be advertised for the view of others, but do it in secret. But then Jesus goes on to describe what does it look like. He says, Truly I say to you, have they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, Jesus uses hyperbole. He uses strong language. He uses language that on one hand seems impossible, for in what way can our right hand not know what our left hand is doing? Unless we're involving some kind of spiritual anesthesia, we're aware of what our heart and our minds and our actual body is doing. But Jesus is calling us to humility in our giving. Tim Keller is really helpful in helping us think about humility. We often think of humility as self-lowering, as thinking little of ourselves, as, 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 and at times uh, lowering ourselves in self-derogatory ways. But he says true biblical humility is not self-lowering or thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking less about ourselves. It's really self-forgetfulness. And so Jesus is saying, I don't want you to pay attention to your heart saying, look at me. I'm about to give to that poor person. I've saved up this money. Now I'm planning to do this. Now I'm going to do it. On one hand, we're not supposed to advertise it to others. But on the other hand, we're not supposed to advertise it to ourselves. We're not to do it so that we can receive the reward from ourselves thinking good on you. Jesus is helping us avoid this tendency to do things that on one hand appear humble, but on the other hand are meant for the display to others. We have a term for this today. We call it a humble brag, right? An example, of, and this is an example that doesn't ring true for New Hampshire, but maybe for someone in Los Angeles, but ugh, my phone is so old. It's, it's three generations old. I'm so embarrassed to take it with me on my dates because I'm dating supermodels and actors and they're judging me. They're saying, oh no, my phone is old, and they're using that as an opportunity to show who they're hanging out with. Whether it's someone else paying attention to us or whether it's us taking stock of what we're doing, there is opportunity even for in the expending of ourselves, even for losing resources, even for being inconvenienced to be about building ourselves up, whether in the eyes of others or the eyes of ourselves. Jesus is calling us to examine ourselves. He says, when you are praised you need to be in a position of asking, am I doing this for the right reason? Oftentimes, we live our lives before God 
and we live our lives before God based on what other people think of us. Now, we may not be going out and seeking the acclaim of others. We may not be advertising our good deeds, our scripture reading, our sense of our spiritual walk, and yet it can still happen. Someone can come up to you and say, I, I really appreciate your devotion to the church. I Thank you so much for praying for me. I look up to you as an example. Thank you so much. And those things can be good. Those things can be true. But are we letting those things describe the internal reality within our hearts? Because people don't see our hearts. Only God does. And we need to ask, is something that the other people are saying about us really true? About ten years ago, there was a number of professional athletes, especially in the NBA, successful athletes who began to drop dead unexpectedly. And over time, they began to realize that especially those who were really tall, who are really good at the NBA, who have all of those assets, struggle with a tendency to have enlarged hearts. And because they were so athletic, because they were succeeding on the highest rank of athleticism and sports, those things went undiagnosed if they weren't looked for. He looks like an athlete. He performs like an athlete. Certainly his body must be in top shape. That person thinks I'm spiritual. I have this ministry that I'm doing. My devotional life looks to be going well. And we can let those externals define the reality of our internal. Jesus is saying what motivates what we're doing, whether we're doing it inside as well as outside, matters for our spiritual health. We are called to watch over our hearts. Why are we doing this? What is motivating us? What is our point? Jesus is not asking us to hide every gift. Not every check we give to charity has to be anonymous. Not everything needs to be done in such a secret that no one notices. But Jesus is asking us, are you doing it in a way that people are encouraged to notice? Are you doing it in a way that is meant to build yourself up? Or are you doing it in such a way that it can pass unnoticed? Are you doing it in such a way that it's become such a norm for you that you don't need to think about what you're doing in order to do the good thing that God has called you to? We're to do it in such a way that it doesn't encourage outward observation or inward self-praise. But if we're asking how, then we're inevitably going to ask why. What will motivate us to true righteousness? Now Jesus uses some language that some of us may be uncomfortable with. Jesus talks about reward. He says, don't be like those practicing their righteousness before others, for they will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Those who go out trumpeting their giving, they have received their reward already. But then he says to you who do these things in secret, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now as Protestants, we tend to wrestle with the language of reward. We don't like the idea of meriting something from God because we've seen this idea abused throughout history. If you love God well enough, he will heal you. If you go on this spiritual pilgrimage, you will get out of hell. You will 
get into heaven faster. We've seen this abused, and we wanted to uphold what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. It's by grace through faith alone that we're saved. But remember, Jesus is talking to disciples. He's not talking about how you get into the kingdom. He's talking about what life in the kingdom looks like. What motivates us when we are living as part of God's kingdom? To help us maybe think about this, C.S. Lewis talks about rewards that are extrinsic versus rewards that are intrinsic. An extrinsic reward might be you run a race and you receive a cash reward. A cash reward doesn't do anything consistent with running. It's something external that's applied. You do the running for the cash reward. Versus an intrinsic reward might be running because you enjoy running. Or working really hard at learning an instrument because you delight in the sound of music. You delight in that thing. And Jesus is saying, those who are performing for those watching them, they are seeking an extrinsic reward. They're not performing righteousness for righteousness' sake. They're performing righteousness for the applause and the adulation and the respect and honor of others. And they're going to get a reward, but that's it. They've already received their reward. He says, it's a fleeting reward. Ecclesiastes 2.16 says this, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. We can live in such a way that we get all kinds of prizes, awards, and it feels good. But is that a true reward that will last? And in the end, it will not. In the end, who will remember us? For those that will remember us will die, and eventually our deeds will be forgotten. No, Jesus says we are to do it for the gaze of our Heavenly Father in secret, and He who sees in secret will reward you. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is what Jesus is talking about. We were meant to live in a righteous way, pleasing to God our Father. And in doing what God calls us to, we will experience the reward of the delight of God, because we were made to bear his image. And God is a God who cares for the poor. Psalm 35.10, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Psalm 113.7 describes the Lord as the one that raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. There is something inherently rewarding in being like our heavenly Notice that Jesus has suddenly started to introduce the language of a heavenly father. The idea of God as father is not foreign to Old Testament people, but it is not common. And here, Jesus calls God our father twice. He calls us to pray 
to God as our Heavenly Father, as we'll read in the Lord's Prayer, suddenly Jesus is reorienting us to see that we are, live in relationship to God, and if we are to reflect this relationship, we will be like God. Let me ask you this. Because in Matthew 5, 16, it says we are to let our light shine before others so that others would see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. Here's the question. Which of these things honors your mothers and fathers more? Is it throwing a huge 50th anniversary party to celebrate their marriage? Or lifting one of them out of their bed in the middle of the night to carry them to the bathroom because they can't do it for themselves. It's not an either or. One commends their goodness to the watching world. One commends their dignity and honor in something that you do alone for them. God's people collectively are to be about good deeds so that people can't help but notice that the kingdom displays the glory of the king. But as individuals within the kingdom, we go about the doing of those good deeds in such a way that people do not see us, but see our Heavenly Father. This is what motivates us. Not that the world would see us, but that they would see the Father. And what motivates us is that we are seen by our Heavenly Father. Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. We will have the delight of our heavenly father. Our care for the poor, our giving to the needy, is to be motivated not by the gaze of that poor person or the onlooker, but the gaze of our heavenly father. Let me just say this about giving to the needy, about obeying this commandment. The good deeds that Jesus calls us to are often very, very costly. Giving to the needy care for the poor goes beyond actually just giving our finances, though it certainly starts there. But often it costs us giving up control. We give our finances to another and we don't know what's going to become with them. We give it to another agency maybe to trust them to expend it on the well-being of others, but we're not in control of that money. We give it to a a poor person that we don't have a relationship with and we don't know what they're going to do with that money. We give up control. Other times when we care for the poor, whether it's the those who are financially lacking or those who are lacking in physical strength, those who are struggling with addiction or mental illness, oftentimes it is so costly. And so very often when we're doing it the way that Jesus calls us to, without advertising it to other people, we will begin to wonder, does anyone see it at all? Does it matter at all? When that person struggling with addiction and in poverty because of addiction relapses for the third and fourth time, you begin to wonder, does it matter? When the person struggling with mental illness finds themselves losing their job again, because of a relapse, you wonder, does it matter? When a cycle of bad choices repeats itself in someone you are trying to help in their poverty, you can say, does it matter? Not even because you want people to pat you on the back. You just want it to have an effect. Jesus says, your father who sees in secret when your left hand doesn't even know what the good your right hand is accomplishing, 
your Father in heaven sees. God sees. It matters because we do it not for what we can see, not for what others can see, but because God knows what is good and sees. Yesterday, so very many of us in this nation remembered September 11th. We took time to remember where we were. We repeated things that we had seen and read and heard on that day. We recounted when people were brave, when people were compassionate. We wanted to honor the good that was done on that very terrible, evil day by remembering and recounting. But here's the truth of September 11th. Most of the deeds of compassion, most of the deeds of mercy, most of the deeds of heroicism were not seen, were not recorded. Those dying in the tower with others who would die comforted by each other, we didn't see that. The countless people whose hands were held because they were afraid that day, we didn't see. The prayers offered to those who were worried about their family members who were supposed to be in the Pentagon that day, we didn't see. But what defines the goodness of those deeds is not whether they were American or not, not whether NBC or CBS or ABC had footage of those things, not whether we had the transcripts as we do from United 93. What matters is that God saw. Brothers and sisters, we don't do good to be seen. We do good because we are seen by our Heavenly Father who has seen us not only when we respond in righteousness and mercy and compassion, but sees us when we are lost in our sin, when we are not only lacking in compassion, but when we are needy in our sin. And seeing us there sent His Son to die for us, to give us the riches of His kingdom, that whether or not the world would recognize Jesus as King, and so many rejected Him, yet God saw and sent His Son. He saw us in our need, in our sin, in our death. And now being seen in Him, we live for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to obey. Help us to obey for Your eyes. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves, not so that the world can congratulate us, but because Your gaze matters most to us. That even when we don't understand how You are using us, how our mercy can put a dent in the poverty and the destruction and the evil in the world, yet you see and you know. Help us to trust that your gaze matters most. When we doubt it, let us look to Christ, who is the confirmation that you see our need, and you will bring about the good you have planned. In Jesus' name, amen.